Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 28. If you're using one of the church's blue Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1008. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Before we hear God's word read, let us go to him and ask for his blessing upon his word here this morning. Fathers, we come before you this morning to feast at your table, to feast upon your word. Uh, We ask that you would remember your promise, that your word will not return to you void, that it will bring forth an abundant harvest. May that be so here this morning, Father. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see your glory and hearts to love you, that we might bow before your will and seek to bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That is the reading of God's Word. In this passage, we have four pictures of faith. Pictures of faith at work in the life of Moses. The first is actually a picture of his parents' faith when they defied the king's edict that every male child born to an Israelite family was to be killed. The second is a picture of Faith in Moses' life when he chose to identify with God's people rather than continuing to live as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He, He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This morning we come to the third snapshot. Moses' faith when he left Egypt. And then next Sunday we will consider the fourth snapshot when by faith he kept the Passover. So this morning, our focus is going to be on verse 27, this third picture of faith from the life of Moses. We we see it again. Read it with me. By faith, he, that is Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the king's anger. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now I wonder what event from Moses' life comes to mind when you hear the author's description. What do you think of when you hear the author say that Moses left Egypt? It seems that there are at least two possibilities because Moses left Egypt twice. 
The first time Moses left Egypt was shortly after the events described in the, the preceding verses, when, when Moses decided no longer to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, when he, when he chose to identify with the people of God. You'll, you'll remember that the, one of the first things that he did in, in coming to the defense of his people and identifying with his people was to take the life of an Egyptian slave master. He saw an Egyptian oppressing and, and beating an Israelite, and he came to his brother's defense by taking the life of the Egyptian. And when he did that, and when he realized that Pharaoh knew that he had done that, he, he quickly felt exposed, he, he quickly, quickly felt in danger, and he fled to Midian to escape. He, he fled to Midian to escape the Pharaoh's anger. And thus he left Egypt shortly after deciding to be known as an Israelite rather than an Egyptian. The second time Moses left Egypt was some 40 years later, after he had been sent back to Egypt by the Lord himself, when he left Egypt with all of the people leading them out in the Exodus shortly after the, the tenth and, and final plague that we see mentioned in verse 28. And so Moses left Egypt twice. And it's not immediately clear which one the author has in mind here in the text before us this morning. Prior to the Protestant Reformation of some 500 years ago, it was generally assumed that this text referred to Moses' flight to Midian. Most people assumed that that's what the author was talking about. However, since that time, since the Reformation, many, including stalwarts such as John Calvin and, and John Owen, names that we greatly respect, they have argued that the author must have the Exodus proper in mind. And the reason that we still debate this is because each interpretation has its own difficulties. The first interpretation, the idea that the author is talking about Moses' flight to Midian, is, is difficult because it's difficult to reconcile the author's assertion that Moses left not being afraid of the king with the description that we actually have in Exodus chapter 2, which, which tells us explicitly that Moses was afraid and that he fled from Pharaoh. However, the second interpretation has its own difficulties. The idea that the author is talking about the Exodus is, is also hard to, to deal. It's, it's hard to understand why the author would speak in singular terms, why he would say he left Egypt. Now, it's possible, of course, that the author is describing Moses as the, the leader and the, the representative of, of the nation. He, he's speaking in the singular because Moses represents all the people. He seems to do something like this in verse 28. Look with me there. He says that he kept the Passover. Obviously, more than just Moses kept the Passover. And so he is speaking of Moses in the singular, but, but meaning the, the nation as a whole. However, look at the end of that verse. At the end of that verse, when he, when he speaks of keeping the Passover so that the destroyer might not touch them, he gives us an indication that he is speaking of the whole nation. He uses a plural pronoun. And then in the very next verse, as if having made a transition from Moses as an individual into Moses and the whole people, he actually says, the people crossed the Red Sea. 
And so there's a clear transition there where he begins to speak of the, the nation as a whole. And if he were describing the nation as a whole in, in verse 27, if he were thinking of the Exodus proper, we would think that there would be some indication, at least in the pronouns, that he had the nation in mind. And so it's difficult to, to see verse 27 as referring to the Exodus because of the, the singular nature of the text. The other difficulty is just simply the chronological sequence. If the author were referring to the Exodus in verse 27, his description of the Passover in verse 28 would be out of order because the Passover comes before the Exodus. If, if he was referring to the Exodus, we would expect it to come after the mention of the Passover. Now again, it's possible that he is just putting things out of order. He, he does something like this in, in verse 32. Notice he mentions Gideon before Barak and Samson before Jephthah and David before Samuel. In each case, the, the order is reversed because Gideon comes before Barak and, and Samson comes before Jephthah, David, or Samuel comes before uh, David. But in those situations, there's a good reason to, to reverse the order because Gideon and Samson and, uh, and David are clearly the, the main characters in those stories. We don't have any reason like that here. Doesn't, it's not immediately clear why the author would reverse the order when everything else up to this point has been in chronological sequence. And so I just lay it out there for you so that you can understand that, that this is a difficult passage. There's a lot of questions to, to wrestle with. It's, it's hard to know. It's hard to de determine exactly what the author has in mind. Moses left Egypt twice. And both departures pose certain difficulties to the interpreters as they, as they try to figure out what it is that the author has in mind. Now, I'll lay my cards on the table. I think that the author is most likely referring to Moses' flight to Midian. As I said, the, the bare assertion that Moses left Egypt, that he left Egypt without any reference to the people, seems to be uh, more indicative of, of Moses acting as an individual. But also, if you look at that second phrase, that he endured as seeing him who is invisible, that seems to fit better with his flight to Midian as well. We'll, we'll come back to that phrase in a little bit, but, but for now, just, just notice that the invisibility of God is not the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the Exodus. But on the contrary, in the Exodus, in that, that, that grand act of redemption, God's power and presence seem to be on full display in very visible ways throughout the entire contest with Pharaoh. And during the Exodus itself, he explicitly manifests himself in, in glory in a way that can be seen in a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Pillars that, that protected and, and accompanied the people as they were leaving. But if you think about his time in Midian, that is a time of invisibility. That is a time where Moses must have been asking, God, where are you? What's going on? I, I thought you had plans for my life. Why am I stuck here in the wilderness? During those 40 years, Moses needed to see the invisible God that he might endure. And so in, in my mind, it seems most likely that the author is referring to Moses' flight to Midian. But whichever reference is correct, no matter which interpretation you favor, there is a lesson here for us as the people of God. But before we get to that, we have to make sense of this phrase that 
he was not afraid of the king's anger. Because that's going to help us to understand what it is that the author wants us to see. Because really, as I said, that's, that's a difficult phrase to reconcile with, with Moses fleeing to Midian. But it's also a difficult phrase to reconcile with him returning to Egypt to lead the people out. Because in both instances, we see that Moses was afraid. Let's look at it first in relationship to the, the first interpretation, that, that, that Moses flees Midian by faith, not because he was afraid of the king. That's, again, difficult to, to reconcile with Exodus chapter 2, which, which tells us explicitly that Moses was afraid and that he fled from Egypt. But I think that what, is, what the author is getting at here in Hebrews is he is not telling us that Moses was not afraid, but that his leaving was not motivated by that fear. Yes, Moses was afraid, but his leaving, nevertheless, was an act of faith. In Acts chapter 7, in his speech before the high priest, Stephen tells us that, that Moses took the life of the Egyptian, supposing that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. You see, Moses came to the aid of his brother. He, he came to the aid of the Israelite who was being oppressed because he believed that he was the chosen redeemer. We saw this in our study of verse 23. Remember, Moses' parents saw that Moses was the redeemer that God had given to his people. He was the beautiful one that God would use to rescue his people from their oppression. And there is no doubt that Moses' mom planted those seeds in Moses' heart even as she served as his nurse in Pharaoh's household. So Moses knew that this was his calling. He was taught even from uh, childhood that he was the one whom God had chosen to redeem God's people from their oppression. And so when he came to the rescue of this Israelite, he supposed that this was it. This was the beginning of the rebellion. This was the beginning of the, the act that God was going to perform to, to rescue his people from their oppression. But when he acted to defend his own brother against his oppressor, not only did his brothers not recognize it, but he also made himself an enemy of Pharaoh. At that moment, he was exposed. He was in trouble because Pharaoh, he couldn't go back to Pharaoh's house, but nor were the Israelites ready to receive him. He was a man without a home at that point. He was a man without a refuge. And the text rightly tells us he was afraid. But it wasn't that fear that caused him to leave Egypt. Rather, he left, according to the author of Hebrews, because he knew that his time had not yet come. He still believed that God was going to deliver his people, and he still believed that he was the instrument that God was going to use to bring about that deliverance, but he now realized that he needed to wait for God to lead. It was not up to him to determine the, the timing he had to wait upon the Lord, and it would have been foolish for him to wait in Egypt. And so he left in faith, not fear. He went to Midian to wait upon the Lord. 
This is actually the interpretation that, that most of the early church favored. This is, this is the way that most of the early church understood this text. In fact, Chrysostom goes so far as to say that if Moses had decided to stay in Egypt, it would not have only been foolish, but it would have been contrary to faith. Because it would have been something like Jesus throwing himself off the temple. It would have been putting his father to the test. It would have been forcing God to come alongside his agenda rather than waiting for the Lord to take the initiative. Trying to force God's hand to support what we're doing is not faith, but rather it is faith that waits for the Lord to lead. And that is exactly what the early church saw Moses doing when he went to Midian. And I would suggest to you that this is actually supported by two details in the, the text of Exodus itself. Moses, when he arrives in Midian, doesn't go there acting like a coward. In fact, the very first thing that we see Moses do when he gets to Midian is he comes to the rescue of Jephthah's daughter. He, he rescues Jephthah's daughter from the shepherds who were oppressing him. He, he acts as a rescuer in that instance. And then after he has given Zipporah as his wife, he names his first son Gershom, saying, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. In other words, even after he had married into the, the royalty of that region, even after he had, he had become an insider in that land, he said, even though I am connected here, even though I have uh, all of the, the, the friends in high places that I would ever need, this is not my home. I am but a sojourner here. My time here will be temporary. And so even in the account of Exodus itself, we see that Moses is still looking to the future, still understanding that God has something for him to do. And it suggests to us that he is there waiting on the Lord. Yes, he is afraid, but he's not controlled by his fear. Even in his fear, he is acting in faith. And I believe that each and every one of us will be required to show that same sort of faith in our lives. That faith that waits on the Lord. Maybe at some point in your life you felt called to, to a certain type of work. You thought that God was, was calling you to be a lawyer or a doctor or to, to start a business. Maybe you felt called into the ministry to be a pastor or to be a, a, a missionary. You were sure that this is what God had for you. You were sure that this is what God was, was calling you to do. But despite the fact that you have done everything in your power to, to make it happen and to prepare for that calling, God has not yet opened the door. And you feel stuck. You feel like you, you can't do what you've been called to do. In such moments, we are often afraid in such moments, we are often afraid that our, our lives are going off the script that we have written for ourselves. We are afraid that our, our lives are, are veering off course and we'll never get to do what we were made to do. And in such moments, it is easy for us to try and force God's hand. It's not easy to actually force His hand. But in our hubris, it's easy to try. It's easy to try to, to force God to do what we want Him to do. It's, it's easy to try to force God to, to get on our script. It is much harder to wait. Waiting takes faith. It is much harder to walk the path that He has marked out for you than to keep banging on the door that He has not yet opened. 
Simply doing what He's given you to do in the moment as you wait on Him takes faith. It doesn't necessarily mean giving up your dreams. Don't, don't hear me wrong. If you think that God has, has called you to something, keep pursuing it. Keep thinking about it. Keep planning for it. Moses, throughout his whole time as a sojourner in Midian, knew that he was called to something else, and therefore he considered himself a sojourner. He considered that time temporary. But he was willing to wait. And we must do the same. Faith means entrusting the script of your life to Him who is sovereign over all. Faith means entrusting the script of your life to God and accepting the role that He gives you to play in the present, even if that means waiting in Midian for 40 years. That's the lesson that we, we learn if we see this verse as, as referring to Moses' flight to Midian. And as I said, I think that's the, the correct reading of the text. But, as I said, it's far from certain. There's another reading here. There's, a, there's another reading that, that sees this text as referring to the Exodus. And if we read it that way, we still have to make sense of this assertion that, that Moses left not being afraid of the king's anger. Because you'll remember that at the end of, of Moses' 40 years in, in Midian, when God appeared to him in the burning bush to tell him that now was the time to, to return to Egypt, now was the time to go and stand before Pharaoh and, and say to him, the Lord says, let my people go. You'll remember that, that Moses' initial response was not eagerness to go. When Moses realized that now he was being sent back to Egypt, all of his old fears returned. And he began to give God all kinds of, of excuses, even explicitly ask God at one point, please just send someone else. We know what that's like, don't we? We feel called to do something. We feel like God has, has given us something to do. But then when the door is actually opened, all of the terrifying fear that, that goes with actually walking through that door resurfaces. We know what that's like. Moses was afraid. Even though he felt called, he was fearful, but he went. Eventually, he went. He acted in faith. His faith won out rather than his fear. And by faith, he went and confronted Pharaoh with God's word and power. So even in this second reading, we, we see that it is his faith that overcomes his fear. In the first reading, Moses' faith enables him to wait upon the Lord in Midian. In the second reading, Moses' faith enables him to act when it was time, even though he was afraid. And again, if the second reading is correct, we will face the same types of situations. We will face situations where we need to act even though we are afraid. In fact, I would suggest to you that we are probably facing such a situation as a congregation even right now. Last week we had a town hall meeting about po the possibilities of, of building. We have reached the, the capacity of our, of our building and we need to do something. And it is a fearful thing to face the future and to, to make changes. 
As I said at the meeting last Sunday, all indications are that the best way forward for us as a congregation is to, to build. We, we feel like that is what God is calling us to do. He, is, he has blessed us with, with an abundance of, of leaders and of, of gifted people who can, who can pour their lives into the lives of others. And we want to make space to be able to do that well and to be able to do that for as many people as we can in this community. We feel like God has put us here for that very purpose. And yet, at least for me, the idea of building is a scary option. There is fear involved for, for any number of reasons. One, one is that simply we have a good thing going here. We have a, a good thing going, and I'm afraid to mess it up. I won't say that Trinity is unique. We're not one of a kind. But this is an unusual congregation. I don't know if you know it, but, but not every church enjoys the peace that we have enjoyed for, for the last decade, for really ever since I've been here. I talk to other pastors. I, I know their stories. I, I hear what's going on, and I don't have stories like theirs. It has been a delight to be the pastor of this church for the past 12 years. And if I'm being honest, I have to admit that it's a little bit scary to put that at risk. By, by changing things up, by pursuing a, a building project. What if, what if building brings dissension? What if, it, what if it messes up the peace that we've enjoyed for, for so long? That's, that's a fear. But building is also scary because it might expose my own deficiencies as a leader. I kind of know what I'm doing now. I've been here long enough, I kind of know how to be the, the pastor of this congregation. But what if building brings growth that, that begins to expose weaknesses in my leadership abilities? Again, it's a real question. It's, it's a real fear. We've all heard of the Peter principle. People tend to advance to the level of their incompetency. Well, what if this is it for me? <laughs> what if this is where I'm pushed beyond the, the limits of my abilities and I get exposed. There's also a third fear. What if we build and no one comes? We can do all the preparing, we can plant, we can water, but only God can give the growth. What if we build and He doesn't give the growth? Will a new building simply be a monument to our hubris? These are real Questions. You may not feel those questions exactly the same way that I do, but, but this is a moment in our history as a church where we, we face the calling of God. God seems to be moving us in a certain direction. We don't know that for certain yet. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. We, there's still much prayer and deliberation that needs to take place as we weigh our options and, and chart a way forward. But the question is, will we have the faith to walk the path that He sets before us? Because whatever that path is, we will face fears as we begin to walk down it. I'm, I'm sure each of you have your own fears associated with, with building and with, with growth. But, but even apart from the, the church, even apart from building and growth, I'm sure you have other situations in your life where moving forward with what God is calling you to do is fearful. Where there are certain things of which you are afraid and there are times when faith means moving forward in obedience even though you are afraid. 
And so really, no matter how you read this text, whether you read it as referring to Moses' flight to Midian, or whether you read it as referring to the Exodus, in both cases, we see that faith overcomes fear. In one case, it is overcoming the fear to not act, you know, to, to, to wait. Faith leads us to, to wait rather than try to force God's hand. In the other situation, faith overcomes the fear to not act, to, to be paralyzed. It, it, it gives us the, the, the confidence to actually move forward in obedience. So one, faith produces a passive obedience that waits on the Lord, and the other, faith produces an active obedience that, that does what he is calling us to do. But in both cases, faith is overcoming fear. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is simply this. How do we get the faith that overcomes fear? What is it that allowed Moses to wait upon the Lord in Midian for 40 years? And what is it that then allowed him to return to Egypt and lead the people out of their bondage in the Exodus? What was the foundation of that faith? Well, we find our answer in the last phrase of verse 27. Notice again what the author says. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, that's a strange phrase when you think about it. How do you see him who is invisible? How do you see the one who can't be seen? But I think we all know what the author is, is talking about. I think we can, we can understand what he means by considering the opposite. The opposite of, of living as one who sees him who is invisible is living as one who doesn't see him who is invisible. Living as one who, who doesn't know or believe that the invisible God is actually there and is actually at work. We sometimes refer to this as living as a practical atheist. You profess faith in God, but in practice, you live as if God were not actually there. And such practical atheism demonstrates itself in, in many ways in our lives. It, it demonstrates itself in this, this anxiety and fear about what might happen or about what might not happen. Anxiety and fear, when they begin to consume us, those are expressions of, of practical atheism. They are expressions of, of not seeing Him who is invisible. And of course, the flip side of anxiety and, and fear is anger and, and bitterness about what has or, or hasn't happened. When we become angry and, and bitter about what God has or hasn't allowed to, to happen in our lives, again, we are living as one who doesn't see Him who is invisible, who doesn't know that He is there working all things together for the good of those who love Him, who doesn't believe that God is actually at work for our blessing. But maybe the most obvious sign of practical atheism is simply prayerlessness. When we fail to pray, or, or when our prayers are, are merely formal, merely going through the motions, when we aren't praying with expectation, when we aren't praying, anticipating that God will actually work, we are living as Him who does not see the One who is invisible. 
Because the, those who see the invisible God live very differently. Those who, who see the invisible God, they may still groan in the trials of life, but they have a profound trust in His love and His wisdom, even when they don't understand. And so though they grieve, they grieve as those who know hope. Those who have an assurance of things hoped for. And while they may grieve over the, the circumstances of their life, they are patient, expecting God to bring blessing. On Wednesday nights, we're currently going through a book called The, the J-Curve. And, and one of the, the profound insights of that book is that the Christian life is not actually cruciform. It is not actually all about dying but that whenever God calls us to die with Christ, it is always for the sake of bringing us through death to resurrection. That's why the book is called The, the J-Curve, because the J-Curve, the, the going down into death that you might come up into life, is the actual shape of the Christian life. And those who see Him who is invisible, they live with that expectation. And they are able to patiently wait for Him to bring the resurrection, and able to humbly accept His will in the present, even when it means living in Midian for 40 years. But above all, the, 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 the posture of the one who sees Him who is invisible is the posture of one who prays. The posture of one who daily depends upon the power of the Holy Spirit that he might walk in a way that becomes the followers of Christ. It's what we just confessed in our membership interview. We, we confess that we will live now in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the followers of Christ. That happens through prayer. As daily and even hourly, we, we go before God and seek the grace we will need to do now, even now, the things that He has given us to do. Lord, be with me this morning that I might do what You give me to do to the praise of Your glory. Lord, be with me this evening that I might be with my family or I might be with my neighbors in such a way that brings honor and glory to Your name. Give me the grace to do what You've given me to do even now, even this hour. This is what it looks like to live as Him who is invisible, who sees Him who is <laughs> invisible. And so the question is, how do we get that faith? How do we get eyes to see Him who is invisible? I want to suggest to you two things that we must do if we're going to see the invisible God. And the first is that we must ask. Seems obvious, but it needs to be said. Only God can give us eyes to see Him who is invisible. Only God can give us ears to, to hear His voice. And so we must go before Him and ask that He would give us eyes to see. If you are struggling this morning to see the One who is invisible, if you are struggling this morning not to live as a practical atheist, then I would exhort you, then go to God, confess that weakness, and ask Him to fix it. A leopard cannot change his spots, but the Maker can. He can give us the faith that we lack. Go to Him. Ask Him to give you eyes to see that you might move forward in life as Him who sees the One who is invisible. 
But even when he gives us the eyes to see, the second thing we must do is use the eyes that he gives us. You see, there's always this balance between what God does and what we do, between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. God is sovereign. Only he can give us the eyes to see. But when he gives them to us, we must use them. We must look to see him. And we look to see him by looking to the places where he has made himself known. We've actually already done that in this worship service this, this morning. We, we did it in the call to worship this morning. What is Psalm 40 all about? It is about the psalmist remembering. Remembering what God has done and then proclaiming others to join him in the, the celebration of God's faithfulness. When we read a psalm like that, when we recite a psalm like that, we are setting our eyes on the scriptures to see the faithful God. It's the same thing that we saw in Psalm 107 as we, as we sang the, the song, Oh, give thanks. That's a, that's a litany of the people of God remembering what God has done of setting their eyes on the Lord. You've heard me say it before, but I exhort you that when you read the scriptures, when you spend time in God's word, do not read so that God might see you and be impressed. That's sometimes the impression that we get with our devotions. I've got to do this so God will see me, and if he sees that I'm faithful, then he will bless me. Do not read the scriptures so that God will see you. Read the scriptures that you might see him and be impressed. Go to the scriptures asking God to open your eyes that he might show himself to you. That you might see him in his glory, that you might see him in his power, that you might see him in his faithfulness. And set your eyes particularly on his preeminent word, the Son in the flesh, the Word incarnate. You see, in Jesus, we see the invisible one most clearly, for he is the image of the invisible God. And when we see Jesus, we see the wisdom and the love and the power of God on full display we see that he so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, Jesus doesn't come to, to make the Father love us. He comes because the Father loves us and because the Father has, has determined to call us out of the pit back into life. In that love, he sends the Son. And in that love, the Son submits even to the point of death on the cross. And by his death, and now his resurrection from the dead, victorious over the grave, we see the power of God to restore those who are dead in their sins back to life. And if we know that he can have victory even over death itself, then we can trust him with all the various circumstances of our present predicament. Whether that predicament calls us to wait, or whether that predicament calls us to act. And so again, it's the same theme we've seen throughout this whole chapter. He is calling on us to set our eyes on Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see him who is invisible. And if we see him who is invisible, then we will be able to endure. No matter what the path in front of us holds, whether it's waiting, or whether it's acting, we will be able to move forward in faith because we know that the invisible God, the almighty God, 
is already at work for our good. And because we have such assurance, because we have such confidence, seeing him who is invisible, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness to us. And we thank you for your grace. And we ask now that you would give us eyes to see him who is invisible. That we might rest in you. And resting in you might be bold to walk the path that you have set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.